In times like these, being a citizen is a big job. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the virtues of self-rule and debate the state of our republic. Welcome to the Citizen's Prerogative Podcast. This is the voice of your nerdy host, Michael Piscatelli, and we are inspired by a co-host whose passion for our republic precedes him everywhere he goes, Raymond Wong Jr. Thank you, thank you. And I am raising the roof today. And I believe everyone should have the ability to raise a said roof. This is episode number 52. We are in season three. And the title of this episode, this is the second plank, plank two, part two in our mini series. The title of this episode is Right to a Minimum Standard of Living. And as Ray so astutely mentioned about ceilings, this episode's going to focus mostly on the floor so that you have something to stand on when putting up your ceiling in your life. The right to a minimum standard of living can't exist without a solid foundation and a fair set of rules. Otherwise, people can't flourish. And when we talk about a minimum standard of living, we're going to go into detail. We've got several bullets and then calls to action where we're going to paint exactly what is included in a minimum minimum standard of living. Because if um, anyone's like me, there's a whole slew of ideas that come rushing into my mind when I think about what it is this, the standard of living like that I have uh, for my own self, either what I experienced growing up or the one that I want to achieve by the time I retire, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a really big idea, but we're going to boil it down to some very specific actionable bullets for us and our republic to be able to help get this established for the betterment of all of us. So without further ado, we're going to start discussing through these bullets. And they're all nested under this idea that everyone should have as equal rights access to the things that bring us a minimum standard of living. So let's start with one of the most obvious things, and that is justice under the law, or more to the point, equal justice under the law. Because some people get more justice than others, some companies more justice than people. So perhaps the court's One way we might be able to address this is for the courts to become more blinded to their biases and not just figuratively, but literally. I I might propose that we try and cut out any extraneous sensory data from decisions that carry the weight or life or death um, or freedom or imprisonment for that matter. There's a book I was reading recently I believe it was Talking with Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell's, one of his more recent books to be released. And it was interesting for a lot of reasons, but for this episode specifically, there's an area in that book where they talk about judges and judges' ability um, to discern how likely an offender is going to recommit crimes if they release them on bail. So, Judges, you know, rotationally, judges are signed up for these type of cases, and these cases are bail cases. So somebody comes to the court, 
and prosecution defense presents their position as to why this person should be retained in prison because they're a flight risk and aren't going to show up at their court dates or can be trusted to be left on their own recognizance. And they won't commit any additional crimes and they'll show up to court when they're supposed to, right? So the judge in the initial state of anything has to make a decision. Do I let this person walk free while the trial is ongoing or do I lock them up in the meantime? And if it's a violent offense, you know, we're talking about if if it's potentially violent or if it's Bernie Madoff, <laughs> either case, right? These are, you, you're trying to look at this individual and, and make a determination as to uh, supposedly, I guess, how well you trust them. And long story short, what the book finds is that people do a very bad job at this. People especially do a very bad job, not just judges, but in general, whenever we're having to interact with someone face-to-face to size them up, to assess them, um, to, you know, do we trust the, their word, you know, and we try and read their body language and, and things like that. But what the data shows is that throws off everybody's decisions. I mean, from uh, heads of state that met Hitler versus didn't meet Hitler to judges you know, who are forced to make these decisions um, about individuals and carry with them the risk that a murderer will con- commit additional murderers or murders you know, while they're released. If they are a murderer, again, we're supposed to assume innocence at the front end of any case. So anyway, that's a kind of a long-winded way to just illustrate some of the biases we face just anecdotally in this one scenario, just for whether or not to hold people on bail and how poorly as humans we are judges of one another. The reason why I throw out the idea of extraneous sensory data is because I think back to symphony orchestras and the fact that they never hired anybody who wasn't like a white man for a really long time until... (laughs) they simply had people audition behind curtains. They couldn't tell if it was a female or an Asian or whatever, you know, label you want to use to describe another human. They couldn't tell. And once they couldn't see this person, all they could hear was their capability. They could hear how beautiful their music was. Almost overnight, you started seeing more diverse, you know, the, uh, orchestras and and symphonies and, and things of that nature. And so that's why I'm like, well, maybe we should just start taking people out of the courtroom. Why do, you know, the data suggests that judges make poorer decisions with that sensory data. They would make better decisions, meaning they would release safe people and they would lock up dangerous people more often if they didn't have this sensory data where they're trying to do mental jujitsu and analyze the person in front of them when evolutionarily speaking, just as well, we've, we've evolved to discern truth. We've just, we've evolved to lie well as well. And so we kind of lose for some reason, judges seem to think that they're really good at reading strangers and they're not, that's the evidence. It would probably show more likely that it's based on the, defendant's ability to pay for mm. pay for suit to show up and look like what what that judge bias may be and I, I think it's interesting to me that the classic statue the classic imagery of the justice wing is the blind with the woman with the scales right i know that knows it's official uh but but it's it's that blind justice right and and it makes sense to me that there needs to be that 
sort of applicability, right? The ideals um, are there. The ideals of justice are there. It's just that man is flawed. Humans are flawed. And we have to blind ourselves to, to remove the bias. Thank you, Ray. So this is just one anecdotal set of scenarios to illustrate the fact that you know, having equal justice under the law is one of the first places that establishes a minimum standard of living. And then <laughs> from there, everything gets better, right? Um, one of the things we propose is uh, compassionate healthcare for all, regardless of affordability. People should not go bankrupt for healthcare, and we need to start with access to healthful foods and the liberty to die with dignity. Healthful foods are hard to come by, and the right to control your time to exit this world is only granted in a, a very small number, if not only one state in our union. And there's nothing more compassionate than allowing people the freedom, liberty, and dignity to decide when to exit because the quality of their life in the future is going to be worse than it is today. And the quality of life of those caring for them will probably be worse than it is today. This is not promoting suicide. It's a very different sensibility, and it has to do with end of life and dignity. We're not going to belabor those points. Healthcare is a whole episode in and of itself, but the idea here is that we should all have access to it and it shouldn't cause bankruptcy. Whether that means it's single payer and free for everyone or we put it in place, other mechanisms in the system so that that's the effect, right? I mean, maybe healthcare still costs something, but maybe we're giving people the money to pay for healthcare. Hmm. We'll cover that a little bit later. And even though these credit bureaus are not our friends by any means, they have even said, eh, maybe... Maybe reporting medical debt is even too evil for us. So, so they're pulling back for, for self-preservation, I'm, I'm sure, in my opinion. But th they're obviously seeing um, the negatives and what, how wrong it is to chase somebody after their medical debt. That's something that they, most people did not choose to be in that situation. I mean, it's a really morbid burden, right? Oh, you didn't die? Well, here's a bill. <sighs> All right, moving on. <laughs> on that note, how about equal pay for equal work? So, like, what else do we need to say? It's pretty clear. I don't, you know, regardless of your shape, size, color, ability, parts um, that you're born with, if you do a job, you get paid for doing a job. If you're performing in a role, you get paid for performing that role. Um, if you're slightly better than your peer, well, then that should be like evidenced and you get paid a little bit more, right? Like it's very simple. This, this, is, this treads into the area of common sense, which is something I generally argue against as an argument because it's not as common as people think. But really, you feel it from a fairness perspective. If you do the same job, why wouldn't you get paid the same amount? And if you're not satisfied with your pay, go get another job. 
I'd like I'd like the conversation to shift with most people because everyone comes in, walks in the door, obsessed about what other people are being compensated and what other people are being paid. And really, you should turn back. And when you're thinking about equal pay for equal work, don't even worry about other people. Think about yourself and what it takes to run your household. What's the minimum you deserve? What's the minimum you feel that you require and your children require to run their households and to have that posterity, to have that sense of stability or, or minimum standard of living. So to secure your minimum standard of living, it's not about what others are getting paid. It's about what you expect to be paid. And there's a median between all of that, right? Because some of you expect millions and millions of dollars, but others are completely happy with a reasonable amount. And there, it's actually somewhere in between all of that. Good point, Ray. And I mean, honestly, an added area to this bullet would be, you know, uh, a, a livable wage. So, you know, people, <laughs> yeah, do please take stock of your time, your limited time on earth. We all have limited time. And what is it worth to you if you're going to be giving away your time by the hour for money? You need to really think about what your 80 years or whatever on this earth is truly worth to you. So one of the other areas where we feel like everybody has equal rights is to uh, an environment that's conducive to life. And, and I'm talking about nature, you know, an idea we found related to information on biomimicry. So when we say an environment conducive to life, there's this field of science called biomimicry where we're trying to leverage nature's best designs for our problems. Nature evolution has been solving problems for eons longer than we have as a species. So the knowledge instilled there is ancient and it's very wise. And so biomimicry is this case of science where we're reverse engineering nature and, and finding the best ways, a lot of times leveraging AI, to design as nature would, do as nature would do. And one of the the benefits, one of the most amazing side effects of designs by nature is that nature always leaves the environment more conducive to life. Everything in nature is working with nature. It's improving, it's making healthier soils. It's you know doing all of these things. Everything in the natural environment is more effective, but also leaves things in a better state, unlike a lot of our industrialized processes, which kind of leave things in a really poor state. So studying nature to leverage its designs for our problems is a really smart way to go. They definitely, nature yields products and it leaves the world more ready for life and to grow. And we all deserve to have that environment. Our ancestors had it and our posterity deserves it. Another right is our, our right to liberty, and it requires us to demilitarize the homeland. Both our citizens and our law enforcement in kind, right? Part of the reason why law enforcement wants to be equipped to the teeth is because citizens are getting equipped to the teeth. It's an arms race in the country, on our shores. It's very scary. The other thing we need to be concerned about is not just this arms race about who's got the biggest weapons, the police or the bad guys, but we also need to be cognizant of keeping the likes of automated warfare off of our shores. 
it needs to be, I mean, in general, we need to limit <laughs> the expansion of automated warfare, even if we're not using drones in the United States, we're only using them overseas. Because if we don't limit the proliferation of automated warfare, then the future may hold something like Skynet. And for those of you who may not be science fiction nerds, Skynet was the mega, mega artificial intelligence program that took over the world in the future of Terminator. So all the Terminator machines that came back in time to kill humans, key humans, you know, that whole consciousness was called Skynet. Um, and we are, it's just another area of science fiction that we're actually on the precipice of creating. And we probably don't even know it. Maybe we do. I think it's hard to know um, what is going to happen with technology, especially because we've seen computers connected to each other that, that invented their own language because the and language we created wasn't good enough. So artificial intelligence has already spooked uh, some of its developers to the point where they disconnected these two computers because they no longer knew what the computers were saying to each other because it, they, the computers thought this is inefficient. Let's continue to move forward. And that's just an idea of the, you, it's, 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 it's almost like the new virus, right? Biological labs have very strict rules, controls and measures and regulation, et cetera, et cetera. And we're probably dealing at that level now where, where computers um, left unhinged could do some, 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 some terrible things possibly. Wow. You know, I'm always looking for the connections between technology and biology because they are everywhere. And that is a great one I hadn't really considered. So you think about viruses, you think about coronavirus. The reason why it's able to spread and, and kill and do all kinds of things is because of the environment is conducive to transmitting it because of the way we travel, the way we live in close quarters. We've created an environment conducive to coronavirus wanting to live. We are the means through which coronavirus lives. We've created the same environment, although not biologically in technology. We have this global network of connected computers like we've never had in the past. And they're operating at speeds and they're operating layers of software. We know human has any possibility of understanding how it's working. It's all these separate little microorganisms in this technology environment that we've created. And now there's all these thinking programs that are coming online that we don't understand how they work. It's important for everyone to understand when we talk about machine learning and AI, these are black box technologies, meaning we can't see how they work inside. It's just like cellular biology before we had microscopes. And so we need to be cautious because if there, there is the capability, there is the possibility of something like Skynet emerging and the environment for it is already here. And it's we, privately owned. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. The I mean, like the biggest risk, right? There's a lot of privately owned things going on. So I think we have a like definitely have another another episode of a, I think of creationism as a citizen. Does it mean? <laughs> oh, amen. Uh, two more bullets, and we can take a break. Additionally, we need to reserve prisons for only the most violent offenders among us. It is really inhumane. Prison is a really inhumane way 
to reform people, to teach people, to get people to reintegrate and participate in society. Prison really does none of those things effectively. So it probably needs to get replaced with something that does do it effectively, supportive housing, things of that nature. Uh, we don't even go to that degree because this is we're talking kind of more at the federal level right now. But prisons, you know, on high have been used to put too many Americans behind bars and take away our liberties. It's the system that has morphed and evolved straight from the days of slavery. The last bullet we have on here is a fair shot at full liberty. It needs to be available to everyone who serves their time. This is for people who go to prison um, and change their ways in support of the common good. So today, before we eliminate prisons, we still have people coming out of prison. They may have been on their best behavior. They may have made one mistake and got caught up with minimum sentencing. And they come out and they want to live good lives and they're fully capable of taking advantage of it. Those people remain disenfranchised in our system. And why would we expect them to want to fully participate in a system that won't recognize or restore their rights? That is unfair and it needs to end. So when it comes to liberty and it comes to a minimum standard of living, we all have the ability, we need to have the ability to make mistakes and recover from them. And we need to be able to operate in society with our free agency. And when we're given those things, we're able to return many times over the value to society, to our communities. When we're invested in as individuals, we give back. It is actually a part of our nature. All people are asking for is, is what others have uh, when they have that income when they have the ability. All we're asking for, all I think citizens are generally asking for is that minimum standard of living that gives people access to this floor or gives them access to the, the system that gives them the access to the benefits that come when you don't have to worry about where your food is coming from and your transportation is secure and the roof over your house is not a question or the roof over your head is not a question mark. How can any of us be free to pursue happiness without a minimum standard of living? On that note, it's time for a message from our sponsor, Citizen Do Good. As misinformation swirls in the cloud and we hear the jeers of hate and the drumbeats of lies grow louder in the distance, we must fully recognize and commit ourselves to the fact that self-rule requires unrelenting vigilance, an unwavering persistence that puts principle and reason above greed and hate. We place our faith in self-rule as the means to fulfill the promise of freedom and justice for all. The time is now to deeply re-examine ourselves and our implementation of governance for the dawning of a new day. We are a proud sponsor of the Citizens Prerogative Podcast, a major partner in spreading the good word about civic love and the power of change for us all. At Citizen Do Good, we want to empower all citizens to participate in their republic in a reconstructive way. With that goal in mind, we need your help to stay on mission and grow this community. 
please check out the shop at citizendogood.com. Pick up some specialty merch like a mug, hoodie, or stickers. If you don't need anything, that's awesome. You can still help out. Just add your cart with some goodwill via a one-time contribution that helps us pay for production and for hosting. As little as $20 goes a long way. While you're there, join our newsletter. It's easy to, and it's free. You'll get updates every couple of months on all of our antics, not just the podcast. Feel free to share any suggestions you have directly through the Contact Us page. Thanks for your support. You know, I, I think about the, the um, you know, I won't go over, you know, the opening to the Constitution or, or um, the Bill of Rights, if you will because I think you do a really good reading in episode 50. But I think that what we have to do is, is really circle back to what does that mean to me? Not what does it mean to others? Like there's, we're like really good at being selfish in a lot of ways as Americans, I feel, except when it comes to looking at how the law and, and the and governance and taxation and income and and all of these things workers rights we're really concerned about others but really we should just look at ourselves and say what's important for me and that's what i think everyone should have and why does that not why is that not the conversation and that's why i'd say that's what we're leaning towards um and when you read components of the constitution or when you read the preamble or whatever you should be applying it to yourself, not others. Yeah, I think that's a great call out, Ray. Um, how can your relationship with life be improved through some of these mechanisms? Because it comes back to investing in each of us to make the nation successful. It's not about taking away something from someone else. It's about receiving what we deserve as humans. I guess I struggle with the idea that I didn't have that, so they shouldn't, right? People say, mm -hmm. I, I struggled. I really struggled. I crawled, and I, I climbed, and I, I lost a nail, and I did it. And others should do that as well. And I, I don't, that shows a lack of empathy and, frankly, a cognitive dissonance from, from what you've really gone through and, and what others deserve because in the bottom line is that our job is to lift the floor to to create that more perfect union means that every child that's born in this nation experiences something better than before it's an it's a it's a strange ideal i know uh, that a child that you don't know and you will never interact with because you'll be dead is going to have a better life than you but that is called being a good citizen and i didn't even mean you know that's a citizen do good mm -hmm. in my opinion and posterity is key i mean i think in the mind of most parents maybe not all parents they won't would want a better life for their children or at least less adversity so we forget that there's two sides to the coin, right? I mean, we always look at people and we think, oh, what advantage, what advantage did they have? And in some cases they did. But I think what we miss a lot of times too, and I find myself making the point is 
what disadvantages did that person not face? What we forget is that there is, there's this whole bucket of disadvantagedness that many of us won't ever even have an awareness of. We, you know, and so that's why we have to be so cautious when we look to others or we compare to others when, when it's our life. We, we should be measuring ourselves by our own standards, by our own needs, wants, and, and what fulfills us, our very nature. People are born without limbs sometimes, right? I mean, not everybody's even born with the same physical capabilities. It doesn't make them any less human. It doesn't make them any less deserving, but they're going to face a very different set of adversities. Somebody born with a certain shape of eye or color of skin or et cetera, et cetera, is going to experience headwinds in a different way from others. And for any of us to attempt to look across to another and assume they had it better or worse, or even to know something about that person and make the decision that it was better or worse is not valuable and it's inappropriate. It doesn't serve you well. It doesn't serve them well. It doesn't move us in any direction. What we need to look at things is collectively and say, you know what? Some people in our society are being left homeless, not due to drug addiction, not due to this, not due to that, because of other circumstances. That in and of itself, you look at that one sliver and you say, as a society, do we find that that is acceptable, that there is no floor, you can fall below the floor? That is not acceptable. That is not fair or right. And we have the capacity to build that floor. So that's what we ask. We ask is say is, what is the worst you would want to face in your own life? Let's build the floor around that for all of us. Let us all not have to face things we don't want to face that we can avoid together, right? As a community. There are just advantages, some disadvantages some people are never going to face or understand. And there are advantages out there that some of us don't even know about that people are able to take, you know, um, to use to their betterment. So I totally agree, Ray. Looking at other people anecdotally is the last thing any of us needs to do. I tried to look back at the last episode as well, because we were really hard on, you know, this idea that people are going to pass uh, the value of their stocks, their companies, deferred compensations, whatever, to their, their heirs. But this system breeds fear. So the fear of being poor, right? So how can they protect their children from what they had to go through, which is strange to me, because that's the ideal of the, 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 I think the call to actions we have is to take away the fear, remove that underlying stress. So you only have to deal with the stress of, frankly, everything, day-to-day, life, traffic, bullying, corporate bullying, whatever, you know, professional bullying. Um, but if we just had the stress of everything else, also keeping your entire base about you, your entire financial and that floor, right? You're the only person holding that floor. Unless you have a household, you're lucky enough to have a nest egg. So how do we get rid of this fear? And I think that's where we're going. Thank you, Ray. Yeah, that hoarding, that fear that that instills that greed and, and that hoarding mentality. And then, and then they gift all this money to their posterity, but the posterity didn't develop that 
nest eggs. So they don't know what rigor it takes to build it and, and it all goes to pot. So what we need to do is give everybody that opportunity to succeed within their lifetimes and not require a hand down from their ancestors. We should have from our ancestors and we should give to our posterity a system for all of us that works for everyone in a fair way. So with that, we move into calls to action. A minimum standard of living with liberty and dignity can be achieved for us all using a very simple mechanism. You've heard us talk about it before, a universal basic income. We call it the national floor. It's a floor for people and their main streets and Wall Street and our government. We spend most of the time here focused on citizens, but as an extension of citizens is everything that comes from it. And when we talk about establishing a floor and giving people a universal basic income, it doesn't just help people, it helps the whole system. Like I said, Main Street, Wall Street, and our government. It provides a basic income where no income exists for all those living under the jurisdiction of our laws, taxation, and economy. Keep in mind, people who aren't citizens still pay taxes. And they're still subject to our laws. They can still make lawsuits in court or go to jail. There's a cost that they take, that they, they have access to by physically being under the jurisdiction and they're paying into it and they're participating. So this is going to be eventually one of the sticking points when we get into the nitty gritty of a universal basic income. But this is one of the areas where I don't necessarily see a hard line with citizens. Um, I kind of look at people participating in their communities and I see citizenship as its own kind of path or set of actions outside of taxation. If you pay taxes, you should have the benefit of those taxes. I'm sorry. That's what's fair. And if we aren't going to give non-citizens those benefits, then we shouldn't be taking their money as tax dollars, which I think is more fraught. It's more difficult to keep people excluded than to let them in. There's plenty of other benefits to citizenship. So the last bullet on this universal basic income the add-on effect of these direct payments to people will generate a trickle up. <laughs> We've all heard about trickle down economics, which doesn't work, but uh, we know for a fact that when you put money in people's pockets, they spend it, a good portion of it anyway. And so you generate this trickle upward effect that feeds a basic self-sustaining level of economic revenues for all businesses and for the government excuse me, you know, the government taxes incomes. They wouldn't tax the universal basic income, but they're taxing the income of the businesses whose revenue is bolstered by people spending this basic income. And it also provides an opportunity potentially for savings for those who are employed well enough to exit the program. So we, we treat this as a floor. We call it a floor. Because as you climb up above the floor to another level, you will stop receiving the basic income. Once you're able to replace the basic income, maybe not in its entirely, maybe it's a little bit over time, the details will get worked out. But the point is this. 
nobody should be poor to the degree that they're homeless. And if people are sick, they should be able to get better. If people go to prison, they should be able to atone for their sins. All of this needs to be true because all of it is fair. It's fundamentally fair. I think that if we want an economy that allows uh, more growth, more creativity, we've shown that art has value, then why not let creators be? We have a serious problem with volunteering, not because people don't want to volunteer or give their time, because they're working. They have no time to give. So there's not always going to be fraud on the end of this direct payment, like everyone thinks. There's not always going to be a loss. In the end of the day, everyone puts their money into the same system to get the food, to get the transportation systems, to participate in the legal system. We, we, all, we all pay into that same core system. So when it comes down to it, direct payments, if you're obsessed about fraud, again, you're focused on the wrong things. Think about what you would do with it and think about what to do for your family. Don't think about what others are going to do about it. Think about what it'll do for your family. Will it help you sleep at night? Will it help you feel better sending your kid on to live their life in the big city? Whatever's going on in your life, focus on that. I love it. And as bankers, we know that, no, for the most part, there hasn't been any amount of fraud that's shut down any product that's viable, right? In, even in the private industry today, fraud is a fact. It is cost of doing business. It's not something that's ever been eliminated and it never will be. And the reason why it exists is because of these disparities in part and parcel, right? Who wants to legitimately participate in a system where the wealthy can get wealthy and stay wealthy forever? They never face the downside of their poor decisions once they've achieved enough wealth. Yeah, that would make anyone want to exit the system stage left and commit fraud instead of joining the likes of all of these legally corrupt, fraudulent people. Wait a minute, so, wait a minute. Are you talking about you know, our economy or American foreign policy right now? <sighs> <laughs> okay, you're right. Let me move on. <laughs> ah, so this concept of a universal basic income is going to require us to fundamentally re-examine ourselves and perhaps our longest held beliefs, including around fraud, which is something that will get managed. It has to be managed. It's never been a reason not to do something. Only our lack of openness to imaginative solutions can hold us back. We should have the liberty to choose how and when we participate in the economy, because our life's purpose and the pursuit of happiness must take priority. Again, participating in the economy should be something we learn and develop skills to do on our own accord. It should not be something we are enslaved to do for survival. I dream of a future where um, we don't have unemployed, right? We have creators, we have capitalists. And, and we, we mutually joke and, and appreciate each other because capitalists should understand. We understand what creators do. True, intelligent capitalists understand what creators do for the economy, right? <laughs> so I think that it is 
it is very interesting to one day, at least if I pass, that's maybe one mission we can get through this whole effort is that we start referring to people instead of employed as creators. And the last little note we'll leave you with this seed for thoughts. Did you know that poor financial health can cause poor physical and mental health? I mean, when I say that out loud, everyone I imagine will shake their head because, yeah, who? I mean, you think about the stress finances can cause. But science has literally figured out and, and can demonstrate that this is very, very true. Um, when humans are preoccupied, you, we all have limited time on Earth. In that time, we have just hours and minutes to make decisions about our lives. What we find is, long story short, when people are poor, when people don't have enough, it preoccupies time and energy in their mind. When they have to, like the difference between $500 for getting brakes repaired or something on their vehicle, now they have to make decisions. What am I going to cut out of my budget? Is it food? Is it the utilities this month? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? The amount of decision-making that has to happen for all these transactions on a daily basis is not something anybody who has more than enough is faced with ever. So when you think about the mental tax on your time in life, consider, the, consider how much time you think about where to put your limited dollars. And remember, people who don't have limited dollars spend zero time on such notions. You think about your 80 years and their 80 years. How much of your 80 years are preoccupied with, what am I going to do to make ends meet this month? Something some of these people have never faced in their entire lives. They're free to use their mental energy on whatever they want. That's not fair. That's not. And, and, but let's bring the... Let's bring the car home here. And, you know, one thing I'm thinking about is the, the classic hit and run. There's nothing more offensive or, or a breach of our, our, our citizenship interaction, right? When someone hits you, crashes into you, and then flees. But what you have to think about in that moment is you're offended by the mere transaction that they didn't pull over for the formalities, but that person probably could, couldn't even afford it. Like they, they had no way in the, it would have brought their entire life to shambles that accident that ticket that matter would have brought them to the brink or even destroyed their family and it became desperation and, and i think as people we really have to think of other people in compassionate moments like that and say maybe they needed it and unfortunately that's the problem with the system is we're trying to create a system where we know they didn't need it because the system is equitable the system is balanced Oh, that's a lovely point. And it makes me remember a conversation we had some time ago. And it was that argument, like from a rich person's perspective, why am I going to pay more tax so that that homeless or poor person is less homeless, is not homeless or less poor in the future? And my argument back to them is for your safety, because you rich person, when you live wealthy and it's obvious and there are poor people all around you your safety is in jeopardy 
those poor people at some point are going to look at your house and they're going to look at you and they're going to be like, there's way more of us than you. We're going to come get our up and comings. We're going to go raid your refrigerator because we're hungry. We're going to go steal your weapons because we're tired of being shot at with them. This is a real situation. Income inequality in this country has gotten so dramatic that rich people are looking around in fear and they should be afraid. I think about San Francisco, right? You've got homeless people mere blocks away from tens of millions of dollars of states. And there's no security guards. There's really no fences. It's amazing. It's amazing that these people feel so safe in an economy where they've taken so much from so many. Now, if you know everyone has their fair share, everybody has enough to eat, nobody's feeling this unfairness, this weight, I imagine we will see thefts go down. We will see robberies go down. Like you said, the hit and run situation. Like if people aren't motivated by fear, because they don't have enough, things will change. Rich people have a vested interest in everyone having enough, so nobody's coming after their things. That's it. I'll leave it at that. I really think that uh, I appreciate uh, this episode a lot because it's trying to focus on um, what is something we may never benefit on. Uh, these, these type of episodes I appreciate because I don't see it happening in our lifetimes. If it does, amazing. But I do think that it's going to take a little bit longer that unfortunately more suffering um, or possibly a world war, you know, because if in in our lifetime, we may see the replacement income if a full on war is launched, which unfortunately we, we are on the breath of maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're one bombing away from world war three. All right. We usually try to end on a high note. Not today. (laughs) We have been your hosts. Thank you to Mr. Raymond Wong Jr. And thank you, Mr. Piscatelli. It's truly been a bomb of an ending. (laughs) It's been something, that's for sure. Oh, for more information on this and other episodes, head over to citizendugan.com and click on podcast. While you're there, hit up the contact us page and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from the community. Special thanks to you, our listeners. We save the best for last. You are the best and you have been for years. Thank you for your support. We know it's painful and we love you. Intro music sampled from OK Class by Ozzy Jock under Creative Commons license through freemusicarchive.org. Other music provided royalty-free through Fizzlian Studios, Inc.